0: Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. This morning we're going to be reading and then we'll be studying together verses 1 through 15. So there Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit beginning in chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, Well, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, Who is this, or what is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. To believe it is all our glory. To take you at your word. Oh, we need such grace, such mercy, such help, such power, even now, from the throne of God. And So we look to you for it. Help us to find Jesus to be the great Savior that he most truly is. I pray it for every soul here gathered. In Jesus' name, amen. In his sermon, The Evil and Its Remedy, there's a great preacher in the 1800s, a guy named Charles Spurgeon. He said this, There are two great lessons which every person must learn by experience before they can become a Christian. First, they must learn that sin is an exceedingly great and evil thing. And that the blood of Christ is an exceedingly precious thing able to save even to the uttermost any that come unto it. Some may know this about me. Uh, I would consider myself a fairly nostalgic person. And it seems I've passed that along to my oldest child. Uh, He's made a habit recently of, of looking up old pictures and videos from when he was just a little guy. I suppose he's meaning to solidify uh, for himself memories that as needed can supply a fuller sense of who he is and how he's been loved over time. The Bible is like that reservoir of history for you and me. As we spend time in the Bible... We're reminded on every page of who we as sinful human beings are, but also of how we've been loved nonetheless by the Savior greater than all our sins. God wants this to be etched upon our souls. He wants it to be laid powerfully upon our lips. For it's only to the degree that we loathe our sin that we will love and long for the Savior. Is it any wonder then that Christ is so little praised and pursued today. Once we lose the biblical notion of sin and of our own sinfulness, the beauty and necessity of Jesus goes with it. It's against such demonic fantasies that we have the realities in our text today. Three in particular of the ruinous rival, our rivalrous ruin. And God's great redeemer. All right. So if you'll look there, we'll begin with verses one to six and the ruinous rival. Uh, it is impossible to calculate the ruin wrought and the cosmic crime that this craftiest being committed. Everything that we know of death and war and hatred, injustice, despair, sin bondage to decay, all of that finds its genesis right here in our passage. And that's before we get to the foundation of the anti-word, perpetually dissatisfying, self-condemning rebellion that he's bled into our souls. It's not in our text, but it would seem this rival wanted to be something that he couldn't be. He wanted to be God. He desired the throne of God. But unable to be God, he then sought in his pride to beat God. And so, he became everything that God was not. He became, to be clear, an infinitely weaker anti-God, endeavoring to drag all God had made to a literal hell. Uh, Dear ones, we need to understand this, that our world is a world that's torn by a world we do not directly see. We do not fight, as Paul will say, against flesh and blood. But we fight against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And chief of all, this one, who does everything he does to undo what God has beautifully and designedly done. He loathes the Lord. And everything that bears anything of his stamp and his image. Man, how he must have hated the Lord Jesus Christ. But, if God has a word, this enemy has an anti-word. If God has an image-bearer, this serpent has poison to mutilate that image. If God gives Adam as the head of creation, this Demonic king will give Eve the nod instead. He comes first to her. If God would make things very good, this devil would warp and twist it all so that what is good is called bad and what is bad is called good. And is that not our culture? He is a ruinous rival. And so we come to verse 1. We're fresh off of Adam's wedding. The serpent is introduced. And two things are said about it. It was most crafty and it was made by the Lord God. I think it's right to say that at this point it's just the animal in view here and that as with all creation there really was something uh, beautiful and good and even most remarkable about it, specifically its craftiness, which made it, it seems, most suitable for a most prideful angel and what he most viperously intended to do. At some point in verse 1, it seems that the serpent of heaven possesses this certain serpent of earth so that it is now able to speak. And if that seems incredible to us, that's okay. We believe in the biblically incredible. Don't forget Balaam's donkey. But at any rate, in the following verses, Light is shed upon Satan's craftiness. First, and to invert the divine order of headship and helper, he comes to Eve, and to undermine the credibility of God's word, he puts Eve to the test about it. The initial battle lines, however smoothly drawn, the initial trap, however slickly hidden, has as its goal coolly. Calmly subverting the good word of God. Our ruin, friends, is in disobedience to the divine word. Don't you see the craftiness here? The serpent does not present God's word for disobedience. What does he do? He presents a carefully crafted representation of. Maybe call it the D-V-D-S-V, right? The demonic standard version of what God had said. Dear ones, the devil knows the word well enough to twist it. Do you and I know the word well enough to resist him? I want us to see that he takes God's overwhelmingly generous word and he puts a negative spin on it. Whereas God led with you may." eat of all the trees. Okay? The serpent posits this. Did God actually say to you that you may not? Okay? God's prohibition for our good, by the way, was but one, one prohibition amid a universe of graces and privileges and benefits and invitations to all eternity. But the serpent then capitalizes upon that one prohibition and suggests might as well have been everything. He wants to plant it in her mind and heart that God, in prohibiting any one thing, has held them back from enjoying everything to the max. And that God is quite unkind and ungenerous for it. He's working to stir up rebellion for favors withheld. And thus to make disobedience, listen, to make disobedience an alluring impulse in us. When I say to my child, don't, it's in our natures now due to this To want to do the don't even more. The temptation is to so scramble the Word of God that we can no longer discern the goodness and trustworthiness of God in it. Do you see how he poses it all as a snarky question? Did God actually say? Hear me now. It is wildly popular in our day to play loose and fast with the Word of God. To meet His clear, definitive, authoritative Word with a hermeneutic of suspicion, a general skepticism, a standing in judgment over the Word of God instead of submitting ourselves to the Word of God, and I'll just say this, that comes, apparently, from a very sinister place. Satan wants us on the slippery slope of self-determination. He wants us to be unclear. He wants us to be confused. He wants us to be without convictions because, hey, who really knows? Did God actually say? Little will be more counterintuitive today, even amongst churches, than to give yourself to knowing and loving the whole counsel of God so that you actually have a a backbone that's made of spiritual steel. Also, little could be more needful today than that. The fall began with this devilish notion. The Word of God is up for debate. And the serpent, we see, is persistent in his persuasion. To her credit, verse 2, Eve initially counters with a correction that's true to God's word so far as it goes, but it does reveal some carelessness. Fact is, at the first onset of any being presenting itself to uh, rival God or to be a challenger to the word of God, what were Adam and Eve supposed to do? get that thing out of the garden instantly. It was to be an instance of keeping and guarding the garden of God. But that's not what they do here. Instead, the enemy is indulged. And as he is, he plays upon an opportunity he discerns in the reproof that she gives him. She says... They may eat of the trees, minus the one, verse 3, that God prohibited, and that as a matter of resistance, they're not to indulge it even by touching it, lest they, what? Die. Now, a lot of folks put a lot of emphasis on the rule she added, but I want you to see instead where the serpent places his emphasis. It's on those last words. Lest you die. It's on the penalty attached to the prohibition. It's like he thinks, perhaps they're only inclined to obey God for fear of punishment and not for the love of God. Perhaps they they really only want to obey God for fear of death and not for the enjoyment of life so that all I need to do is convince her the wages of sin is not death. That there is no penalty in acting against the word of God. No judge, no jury, no injury, no judgment. Indeed, there, in disobedience, there is a thrilling life And dare we say, maybe even theistic evolution. At which point, in verses four to five, the serpent simply but most malignantly lies. Remember, we say, you do this, you'll be like God. And so a lie is pitted against the truth. They and we in them are given an anti word as a viable alternative for our faith. Who will they believe? Who will you and I trust? That's the question. You see, in saying they shall not surely die, the serpent has made God out to be a self-serving liar. The divine penalty is a vain fabrication designed to keep you under his foot and bury your true potential. The being, you're capable of being. Trust me, he wants no rivals to his sovereignty, you see. In short, he tempts her to believe she can play by her own rules without any fear penalty. She's free to live as she pleases. She's free to be self-determining. She's free to create her own reality to be like God by thinking, believing, and acting against and independent of God and His Word. I I trust you see the contemporary relevance of all of this. Let it assure you that the Bible is the Word of God and that it's true. It's a true account of history. My, how tricky it is to bait those made in the image of God to reflect God's likeness and truth with this notion. Act as if you weren't a dependent creature, and you will be like God. Though it always has a bitter aftertaste, his venom sure seems sweet. Before it's taken, oh, to see the hooks that mean to pierce and ensnare our souls to the pit. It is our tragedy, our fall, our ruin, that she does not see it, that they, surrounded in and out by divine bliss, do not see the hook. They just must have the more that makes them so much the less than what God made them to be. So verse 6, we see the first sinful human action. And in it, we see our ruin. Without taking counsel with the Lord and His word, this anti-word overwhelms her. However, irrational it all is. It all seems way too practical now. The fruit is pretty and healthy and beneficial and it is life-altering. And so she ate and she gave some to Adam who was just standing there chilling, apparently, watching the whole thing unfold and he also ate. They chose to live not as one will on every word that comes from the mouth of God but on every word that came from the mouth of a demon and so here we are. Here we are. The cosmos created by the word of God was ruined by disobedience amid direct attack to the word of God. It is only a case of unfathomable grace that we have not heard the last from the word. He does have something for this ruinous rival. All right, let's come now to our rivalrous ruin if you want to look at verses 7 to 13. Again, can't be more relevant or sad. It's as if we're given a a front row seat to the initial impact and then the degenerating spread of sin in the human soul. They are instantly aware of a loss. It says their eyes were opened, verse 7. And they knew that they were naked and, oh, by the way, not like God. Not like God. Friends, I want you to know that sin never makes good on its promises. Ever. It may promise the world, but they only lost their souls. They only lost their innocence, their life, their peace in the presence of God. It makes great promises, but only to ruin you, only to kill you, really. At the end of the day, the wages of sin is, in fact, death. God said they die, and they have died. And the rest of our verses are depicting this for us. They died here in that they lost, as I said, their innocence in gaining a sinful nature, in gaining guilt, they lost their inherent righteousness. And they knew it. And friend, I want you to know that you know it too. You know it too. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, this is the huge hole in your chest that you cannot discard or ever satisfy. This is that intolerable itch that you have not figured out at all how to remedially scratch. Again, it's Genesis, is right here in these verses. Something in all of us speaks of former times. Aches, doesn't it? For another world. Romanticizes despairingly of a joy and a peace and a glory lost. We think, we think it's just a, a, a dream that we'll, we'll snap out of one day. Or, or maybe that it's a, a gene that we can isolate and then remove out of the human nature. Or, or maybe it's a, a sheepish fantasy we can explain away or a natural flaw that we can offset if only we get so many worldly pursuits in our lives. And yet what? It's always there. Always there. Like a haunting shadow. And that's because originally, as a matter of historical fact, we were made by God in a version of this world that would have eternally satisfied our souls with His presence and glory. It's written elsewhere in the Bible that God has put what in our hearts? Eternity. That's the hole. That's the itch. That's the incompleteness. You and I were in Adam when they lost everything they had. When they became lost people. And see again, they they know it. And knowing it, they, they try to do something about it. As one put it, having an acute sense of their loss, they then try to deal with it. They themselves try to cover up their loss, hence fig leaves, loincloths. But that covering, trust in that covering, only actually exposes the spiritual deadness that was now governing their minds. They've just poisoned the entire cosmos with death. And the sin that poured it out, they count a small thing. Man-made aprons external to our hearts. That'll suffice to cover up what we have just done. It's symptomatic of the fall to make light of cosmic treason. To doll up and try as all get out to remove the weight and the sting of sin to believe that you and I, that we can fix the mess we've made. And so we clothe ourselves. A patch of charity here, charitable donations, a stamp of good deeds over here, a a leaf of achievement on this side, a stitch of religion round the back. A decal of pluralism, just to cover all our bases. And uh, can I get a few branches of just intelligence and money and the general fear of man? And yeah, I think think that'll do it. Good enough. But does it do it? (laughs) I mean, still, the conscience stings us, doesn't it? And that's because the price of atonement for sin, that we should live forever and not go down to the pit is more than man can ever pay. The recovery of what was lost is greater than you and I have the will or power to achieve. Our fig leaves... (laughs) are woefully insufficient for the task of redemption. And we see this in the text, as well as another sign of their spiritual death. That they have made coverings for themselves does not in the least give them peace in the presence of God. You see that? Look at verse 8. The Lord approaches them now as guilty sinners who have no light at all concerning the way of salvation. So here, in a nutshell, is our tragedy. The only one who can save us from our sins comes calmly to address our fallen situation and we run the other way. That's our tragedy. Now, see in this. One, the inner sense of their sin was bigger Than they allowed themselves at first to believe. And yet, two, after discovering the futility of their fig leaves, they still believed that they could somehow avoid the eyes of God. That's why they hide. Though He's given them no reason to do so, they are terrified of Him. believe. One way or another, they have to and can avoid Him. If not by fig leaves out in the open for everybody to see, how about the shade of those trees over there? Not only did they think their sin's small, they relatedly thought their God small at this point. Their theology was whack. Is that still a thing? No. Okay. Their theology had, had, again, literally gone to hell. Sin has made us awfully irrational. Degenerate theologians by nature. Against the, the testimony of our consciences. Sin is little, God is ignorant, we can spare ourselves. And their attempts aren't done. If fig leaves won't do and hiding won't do, let's just triple down into a self-justifying spirit of accusation to get a feel for this show of death. Let's just be reminded that they've received nothing but good from God's hand, and that though they've been instrumental in throwing the world into a demonically induced decay and all the sorrows we've ever known, climaxing in the evil exercise in the death of Christ, still, God comes to them to redeem them. Though they now have it in their hearts to flee Him, He has it in His heart to walk towards them. Sin would have us save ourselves from the Savior. It convinces us He is only a judge and nary a justifier. That He is full of wrath, but void of all love and grace and mercy. So even here, as Paul will later say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the serpent is laboring to what? to blind the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's coming. Verse 15. You see the Lord reaffirming His design calls first verse 9 to Adam. He questions him. Where are you? That's not because God is ignorant of their whereabouts but because God does not want them to be ignorant of their whereabouts. What I mean is, the Lord wants them to understand what they've done and what they're presently doing. He wants them to know things are not as they were, and things are not what they should or could be again. But how do they respond? How does Adam, brothers, how does he lead? Well, I... uh, God, I heard you, and and I was afraid, and I was afraid because I had lost my innocence. I was naked, and so I I hid myself. And honestly, there there is some good honesty there that due to sin now takes a wretched turn. God, you see, in verse 11, then questions Adam about what he's lost and about his personal responsibility directly against his word, in that loss. And how does Adam respond? Not as the tax collector in Luke's gospel. God be merciful to me as sinner. He responds as a sinful wretch. Even in the presence of God now, he will not accept responsibility for his sins because he cannot handle the penalty, he will not take the blame. Instead, he shifts the blame. Oh, my goodness. He shifts the blame to his wife, who just a few verses before, he's serenading in song. And infinitely worse, he shifts the blame To whom? To God. The wife that you gave me. Lord, my failure is your fault. It is a fist in the face of the maker. You want to see sin? There it is. Adam excuses himself by condemning the just one who would graciously justify him. And Eve does a little better in verse 13. The Lord asks her a penetrating question. What is this that you have done, oh, to really know? But she too is unwilling to trust mercy Come forward a sinner and lay herself in God's hand. No. It is a quick retort familiar to us all. Okay, I was deceived. I ate. But the devil made me do it. And that's it. That's all they can muster as a defense. Fig leaves, hiding trees, and this is all somebody else's fault. And what we're supposed to see is that left to ourselves, we would never have been saved. Never. By the end of verse 13, we have come to the end Of all man's ingenuity and ability to cancel out our sins and so recover what we lost and if it was left there as theoretically it could have been we would have no hope in the world thankfully there are 47 and a half more chapters of Genesis Followed by 65 more books of the Bible, beginning with our verse 14. If you look there, we've considered the ruinous rival and our rivalrous ruin. Now we get to come to God's great redeemer. I find it interesting that the serpent has not fled the scene. One wonders if he's stayed around to gloat. Sort of bask as a serpent might on a rock in all of this downfall, to revel before God in his supposed victory. And if so, it's instructive to note that God appears neither at a loss nor defeated. God made the serpent, he retains his throne, he exudes utter control in handing out his curses and his judgments, and for today, we're just going to consider what he says to the serpent. Now, I'm of the opinion that his words in verse 14 largely address the animal. For rising up against God, for rising up against man, the serpent would be relegated to the dust, right? become most vulnerable to being trampled and defeated, its life, the serpent's life, the snake's life is unusually cursed in that way. But that's not to say there is no word of God for the serpent within the serpent. That's verse 15. And in verse 15, God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we call this the proto-gospel. The proto-gospel. Okay? Here Okay, is divine hope for all the world. Here is the promise of something that's actually capable of redeeming sinners for God. So, what has God promised the serpent in the hearing of these sinners? In our hearing that while the devil may have started a war, the Lord God Himself will finish it. Notice he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. What he's saying is that beginning with Adam and Eve, Satan's regime will not be universal. It will not be finally victorious. Though from Adam we all come into the world as his slaves, not all will live and go on to die in that condition. God will set a people free. The devil might have initiated degeneration, but the Almighty will initiate regeneration. Out of Adam's fallen race, the Lord will save His enemies. And in making His enemies, His family, unleash us in truth and love against the powers of darkness. He will raise up a new humanity from the ashes of Eden. And that is why, by the way, Adam names his wife, Eve, not death giver, but Eve means what? Life giver. Yeah, life giver. She's the mother of the living, not the dead. By God's grace, Adam and Eve become new creatures, and they believe this word. Genesis 3.15, They believe it. But we're not done with it. If in the first half of verse 15, God promises the church, in the second half, he promises necessarily Christ and him triumphantly crucified. That's why Eve's believing offspring is reduced here to how many? one person, to a he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The resurrected children of Eve have a great captain. If we live to God, it's owing entirely to this one. Now, there's a great irony in this that the devil, to spite his brilliance, never figured out not in several thousands of years, to plan for it all, such as the wisdom and power and invincible purpose of God. Who looks upon the cross-tortured Jesus and says, "Tis but a flesh wound. That's just a, a bruised heel. In fact, I, I see in The cross tortured Jesus. The victory of God. Salvation for sinners. The utter demise of sin, Satan, death, and hell. You know who didn't get that? Satan. Nor any sinner. Until the sinner, at least, is born again. And then, uh, the eyes of the heart are opened in a new way to a better and saving reality. Here's the reality. By his wounds, Satan is crushed. And believers, anyone who believes, is healed. We fell into death by disobedience, by sin. Jesus restores us to life by obeying even to the point of death and even death on a cross. In our place condemned, He stood. Oh man, Satan wanted God's throne. Little could he know that for a time God the Son would willfully give up His throne. Come into this world. Put Himself to the trial. Be tempted more than anyone ever. Stand fast on God's Word. Never sin. And subject Himself in view of resurrection to all the evils of sin and more subject himself to the infinite justice of god that you and i deserved behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world he god's own son was god's own and only Provision for our sins. Christ took our punishment. And not only did He take it, He finished it. He erased it. In this act, a reversal occurred. An undoing, as it were, of all that Adam did. And having done it, Adam himself could not undo. In Jesus, friends. The incompleteness that you feel but can't solve. The conscience that you cannot quiet. The peace you don't have. The sin that you cannot cover. The death that you cannot shake. It all comes to a new head and a divine hope in Christ. You may be the greatest sinner there ever was. You're not, but you could be. But He is still a greater Savior. As He walks toward you right now, and as He speaks grace to you, let me encourage you, fear not. Fear not. Come out of your hiding place. Put off your fig leaves. Put on faith in Christ. The judge is yet the Savior of sinners. All you need to do, all you need to do is take Him at His word. Put off the anti-word. Take Him at His word. Do not run away from Christ. Run into Christ. And run into Christ straight away. Say it now, as as one said before, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. You cannot be more hopeless than Adam and Eve were at this point in Genesis 3. They ruined the world. But they were found by God. They believed in the pending blood of Christ. And so while the world gave way, they gained life and peace with God again. Beloved, hearing that, is that not cause for you and me to rejoice for all eternity? Very simply, let's thank God for the grace that has saved us from our sins. Let's thank Him for Genesis and let's thank Him for the Jesus that we find in Genesis. The time is nearer, now than when we first believed. Having already crushed the serpent under his feet, I want us to hear the words of Paul in Romans 16 verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's going to be done. Until then, this grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the great Savior, be with you and so we go let's pray oh lord let your son be exalted above everything may he have all the glory may our hearts just be consumed with love for him joy in him assurance in him And help us go out from this place, not only to encourage one another in the truths of the gospel, but to share the gospel with those right now who are lost. And oh God, by your mercy and by your grace, please give us great favor with them. Give us a great harvest in these days. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.